Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt, and we're here with Dan Dury. It's June 6, 2022. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield University. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, first question to get you started is why wine? Hmm. Why wine? Uh, well, I'd say that I didn't expect to be in wine when I first started out. Uh, Kansas boy, grew up in the Midwest. Um, kind of worked my way out west through via Colorado. Um, I'd say my biggest link to the wine business is that I'm a, a chemistry major. I was a chemistry major in school, molecular biology, uh, but never really any intention of getting into wine. When I first started out, I, I uh, dreamed of kind of working with the fisheries industry, and, and uh, my goal was to, to do research for the fisheries industry. Uh, and um, before I was able to really go into that career. Uh, I ended up, I, I played professional soccer when I got out of college. I played soccer all throughout college and played professional soccer when I got out of college. And by about my fifth year of, of, of playing soccer, I realized my research degree was going to be pretty much obsolete by the time I got out. So I uh, chose to just continue and play soccer and, and figure out my life from that point. I figured it was a, a good opportunity for me that I couldn't refuse. So I uh, did that for about five years in Colorado and, and uh, met, a, met a girl whose, whose family was, uh, was from out here in Oregon and uh, followed her out here in 2001. And uh, still no real intention of getting into the wine industry. Uh, obviously being from Kansas and, and, and Going into Colorado, I had worked in the restaurant business in Colorado. I knew there was a wine industry. It was just really getting started in Colorado. Um, and, and, you know, worked in restaurants and, and kind of understood wine uh, from more of the sales standpoint than really the technical standpoint. Um, and uh, when I moved out to Oregon, uh, didn't really have many opportunities other than the restaurant business that I had been in. So I continued to work in the restaurant business. And I had some friends who uh, worked for the Audubon Society. And they, they knew of a school in, uh, in Portland, uh, Capitol Hill Elementary School, that was looking for a, a teaching assistant uh, for a science teacher. So I went and taught elementary school science uh, at Capitol Hill Elementary School for about five years while I was uh, waiting tables at night, kind of pay the bills. Uh, it so happened that the, the, the restaurant that I worked at was, was serving a lot of people in the wine business, um, waiting on the Pamplins, uh, waiting on a number of other folks in the wine business that would come into the restaurant. And, and as I got to know them, uh, I started to understand that there might be an opportunity for, for someone who had some experience with some lab work. Uh, obviously, we're not... It's not rocket science in the wine lab, but, um, but just the ability to work around glassware and, and uh, you know, understand the, the, the concepts of what you were doing, scientific method and such. Um, 
I, I was introduced to the assistant winemaker at the time at Cana's Feast Winery. Uh, his name is Patrick Taylor. Uh, head winemaker at the time, it actually wasn't Cana's Feast Winery, it was still Cuneo Cellars at the time. So I uh, was introduced to Gino Cuneo uh, and Patrick Taylor and they hired me for an unpaid harvest internship uh, at Cuneo Cellars in, uh, that would have been 2006. And uh, at the time, there was a, there was a kitchen there at, at Cuneo Cellars and we had an executive chef, a uh, fantastic chef named Lisa Langston. And she um, allowed me to wait tables to, again, pay the bills and kind of learn my way through, through the, the lab and, and the cellar and kind of work my way up from, from cleaning tanks and doing lab work uh, to associate winemaker at, at Cuneo Cellars. That was 11 years that I, that I worked there. Uh, in 2016, uh, Lady Hill came to me and asked me to take over the head winemaking program. Mm -hmm. uh, owners of, of Lady Hill were from Kansas, and uh, as they were kind of going through their growth period from being a part of Owen Rowe, the owners of, of Lady Hill were also the owners of Owen Rowe, uh, as they transitioned into Lady Hill, they needed to go and find another location to make their wines. So I got an opportunity to make their wines at, at Cana's Feast Winery, and that was kind of my introduction to, to the Owens. So they came and asked me to take over the Lady Hill program in 2016, and I've been there ever since. Why wine? Oh, well, I think there's a there's a love of the scientific method and, and, and for me, love of the outdoors that, that really was a, a, a combination of two things that I, that I really loved. Mm -hmm. uh, the wine business was all of that. Um, loved working in an active, fast-paced environment and from the first day I walked into to Cuneo Cellars, I knew it was exactly uh, the environment for me. Mm -hmm. um, ever-changing, always something new when you come in, uh, incredible amount of variables putting together to try to make, make something, something work, mm -hmm. um, and, and camaraderie. The people that I met that were a part of the wine business I thought were, were really cool folks, and, and turns out they were, <laughs> and most of them are. Uh, so a combination of those four or five things made it a, a perfect career for me. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your the, the first harvest experience you mentioned, 2006 at Canis Feast. Uh, tell me about your memories of that experience and, and what was exciting to you about it. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, I walked in there prior to harvest, so I was sort of harvest prep at the time. And, you know, really basic. I think they, we were, we were uh, filtering the wine, plate and frame filtration back then, you know, prior prior to real cross flow and such, but plate and frame filtration, and I remember kind of just being sat in front of it. Uh, I don't know if it was a, a test to see how long I would last or, or what, but um, you know, it was a pretty boring job, uh, kind of watch wine being filtered. It wasn't, wasn't the most exciting aspect. Um, 
but, but there were all of these other things that were going on. It was kind of harvest preparation and, and there were opportunities to, to go up into the vineyard and, and kind of discover, discover the vines. There was opportunities to kind of do these preliminary labs that were just, you know, super exciting for me to kind of, you know, jump into something like that. Um, leading up into harvest, uh, you know, I thought I knew what what hard work was. I mean, I, I'd done landscaping and, you know, I put in my time, <laughs> but, um, but, but from, you know, really the moment that harvest started, um, you know, 12 to 15 hour days, uh, really labor intensive work, um, shoulder to shoulder with, with a group of folks. Um, it was just super exhilarating for me. I mean, really exciting and, and um, you know, it's take, it, it took three or four vintages under my belt to be able and look back at that experience, you know, when that's all happening for you the first time and you haven't seen those wines come full circle, it's still this, this discovery period of the business uh, where, where you haven't really started to put all of those processes together into bottle and, and then to start selling the wines and, and all of those things. It's just really this, this snapshot of, of uh, just an incredible amount of, of hard work and, mm -hmm. and uh, just super exhilarating for me. You mentioned multi, kind of multiple vintages before you can look back. Tell me how long it took you to feel comfortable with the work and feel like you were not just flailing around, but, but actually working towards something that you understood. Sure, sure. Um, well, you know, I think um, being new to the wine business, uh, you know, it probably took me uh, a couple hundred labs running SO2s and, and um, you know, just basic wine chemistry uh, before you kind of start to see this, see the pattern, mm -hmm. understand the pattern. That being said, you're doing that within the first couple weeks of your first harvest. <laughs> so uh, it becomes pretty clear, the, the lab side of it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm still learning that lab side of it as new techniques come out, as new processes come out, as a, as a you know, greater understanding, I mean, the basics are still there, but as a greater understanding of, of, of what's going on from a molecular level, mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, again, still part of that discovery. Mm -hmm. So the, the, as you started to kind of progress through your time uh, at Canis Feast, or mm -hmm. as, it, as it became Canis Feast mm -hmm. as well, um, tell me about how the, your, your role changed and how you took on more uh, and what it was that you were enjoying about the work sure. you were, that was being added to you. Sure. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, I was initially hired as a, a lab tech position mm -hmm. without any real, real future in the business. Um, I was kind of waiting tables at the, the kitchen at the winery as well. And in order for me to be able to make this a production position full time, 
I had to work through a year and a half of doing all of these other jobs and it ended up being more than a year and a half uh, because as I started to um, get out into the restaurant biz, uh, the restaurant side of the business and the wine sales side of the business, I think uh, people recognized fairly quickly that I had a good ability to sell wine mm -hmm. as well. And having an understanding of, you know, wine from a molecular standpoint and a production standpoint and all of these techniques that are going on in the back, you know, to be able to go and tell that story to the consumer, mm -hmm. I think not every day average tasting room folks can go and do that. I think it's, it's probably the piece that they, they lack. They, they might have a really great ability to sell wine, but the full understanding of that and the processes, not that it's necessary, but it helps. Mm -hmm. And I think people recognize that and they saw that to a point where uh, they needed me to help sell wine. Mm -hmm. So uh, I worked in the tasting room, I managed the tasting room, I managed the cellar club. I did all of these other pieces uh, in the business that gave me this opportunity to see the full scope mm -hmm. of it. Um, it allowed me to, to understand that, you know, sitting back in the cellar and making these uh, boutique-style wines, uh, it doesn't really do any good if you can't go out and sell them. I mean, it's a business, you know, and I think that was the thing that it taught me is that it is a business. And, you know, despite all of these things that you need to do with the wine throughout the process and not compromising the integrity, all of these things throughout the course of wine production, it's all about sales. So uh, being able to see that, I think, has, has really helped my career blossom. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's, it's shown me all of these other sides of the business uh, and it's you know, kind of opened up that idea. I think as an artist, I've always kind of cared more about what goes inside the bottle than what the outside looks like. But as you go through this, this sales side, I think uh, you, you realize that that matters. Mm -hmm. What that wine looks like on a store shelf matters. Mm -hmm. What that wine looks like in front of a consumer, it matters. So I think it's, it's helped teach me those, those ideas. So from both a perspective of dealing with a consumer one-on-one, -on -one, that kind of tasting room type experience and, and, and selling wine to a store or to a restaurant, uh, tell me about as you, as you were growing into that role, what, what did you find were the most important things? What were people asking you? What were people excited about in yeah. the wine? And how did it, what, what, what about your skill set like lent itself to, to explaining that well? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think because I've been in the sales side of, of you know, both the restaurant and, and I've worked in a wine shop before in, in Colorado, um, kind of that understanding of, of uh, what the consumer's looking for, I think is, is super important. Um, not everybody's interested in talking to the geeky assistant winemaker, you know, it just, it's, it's, it doesn't resonate with everybody. It, it, uh, a lot of people are, you know, they're put off by that. And so I think the more I realized that that was attractive to some folks, uh, I was also realizing that it's, it's, you know, making the industry inclusive for every consumer is extremely important as well. And there were a lot of people 
back then and even still now, but, but a lot more people back then that didn't have, you know, they didn't have a firm grasp of, of the wine industry and, and, and what it was about to do in the, in the, in the valley. And, and so a lot of people we were seeing were beginning consumers. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I realized that you, you can't approach everybody from a technical standpoint. And honestly, some people just want to treat you like a bartender. You know, they just want to come in and talk about their lives and, and you and, and, and they don't care about wine. Um, or at least, you know, less care about that side of it. Um, you know, I think realizing that, that each consumer is a little bit different kind of helped me explore more about the consumer in general. And so whether that be a, a direct-to-consumer that's coming into your tasting room where you're face-to-face -face and you have that, or how your product looks on a shelf in New York, um, tying those ideas together is, is extremely important. Mm -hmm. It's two different methods of selling, but they have to, they have to fit with, with the brand. Mm -hmm. So uh, it really helps me, me realize that about the consumer. I think, um, I think it's something that, that's a positive about myself and, and my career is that I have that ability. I don't think that is given to every winemaker. You know, I think some, some of them, some of us, uh, just choose to be on that winemaking side and don't take that journey into the sales side. And that's fine. Uh, everybody has a different career, but um, I think it's really propelled my career and, and very quickly because I was able to see those concepts and, and, and work through those things early on. Mm -hmm. So. How did you see, or did you see, consumers changing uh, as you were kind of growing into the industry? Did you see them having different knowledge, different demands, different expectations on you and on the wine? Yeah. Well, it's funny, because um, I've always worked for wineries that have, uh, you know, although I think we've always made world-class whites and Pinot Noir from the valley, I've worked at two wineries that have been traveling up into uh, other parts of Oregon, whether it be Southern Oregon or the Gorge. Uh, I've worked at wineries both that have traveled up into Eastern Washington and brought back warmer climate varietals. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've really worked at two wineries that have tried to tell this Pacific Northwest story of wines, more so than just Oregon. Mm -hmm. So it's given me this opportunity to make, to produce uh, stylistically different types of wines, mm -hmm. whether it be whites or pinot locally or big reds from, from warmer climate areas. Uh, and, and because of that, I think I've also been able to see a, an, a consumer in the industry and, and I hear this a lot, this is, I love Pinot, but I'm looking for something else. So it's, it's allowed me to open up that idea that yes, although you know, we're here in the Willamette Valley producing whites and Pinot, people are looking for wines for more than just those occasions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, uh, the biggest 
thing that I've seen throughout the course of my 16 years is when I was first working in the tasting room, I think people had a different idea about how to consume wines. I, I think, generally speaking, the idea of food and wine together is new to our country. And, and people sitting down and, and not just quaffing a big, huge Cabernet Sauvignon with no food, that used to happen a lot more back in the day. Um, I think the biggest thing that I've seen, and, and, and hopefully it's because I've been trying to tell that story, and I'm not just saying that I'm, I'm the one that's responsible <laughs> for it, but I think we have started to tell this story as an industry about food and wine together, mm -hmm. and, and not just food and wine, but the experience and wine together, whether it's a porch swing, or a steak, or the beach, or whatever that experience with friends and family is, there's wines for that occasion. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think being able to watch the progression of, I call it the American palate, who knows, but that progression of the palate here of what people drink from being just drinking alone to opening up all of these other occasions to drink wine. So I think over the course of the 16 years that I've, I've been in the business, I've, I've seen that progression in people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think is great for a winery that makes a lot of different types of wine, because that's an easy sell. What's oh. your favorite wine? What's the occasion? When are we drinking it? A wine for every occasion. There is. That's, and uh, I've said that throughout my career because I've made you know, 15 to 20 some wines every vintage, multiple varietals from all over the place. So being able to tell that story has been critical. So at the end of your time uh, with Candace Feast, you're assistant winemaker? Correct. Tell me about that role. What does that role entail? What did the role entail for you? And when the, the, uh, the Owens came looking, mm -hmm. what, what did you think, what made you think you were ready for the next step? Sure, sure. Well, I think, um, I think that progression from, uh, uh, you know, however they would call that uh, seller master, assistant winemaker, uh, however that, that starts, you know, I'd like to believe it starts with everybody with cleaning a tank and, and, and just the basics, you know, an understanding of the, the, the cleanliness of the industry and, and, and you know, sort of that, that idea that you're, you're starting out down here in order to understand all of these concepts as you move up. Mm -hmm. um, I had someone that, that was kind of doing some of those types of work, so it really allowed me to, to kind of get into the lab and, and, and you know, understand wines kind of from a, that molecular standpoint. And, and that was, it was incredible. I mean, it was really a, an eye-opening experience for me to, to kind of look at wine that way and, and, you know, kind of help that to propel how I produced wines. Not necessarily that I make wines from a chemical standpoint, but an understanding of that I think is, is really important, mm -hmm. especially microbially and, and, and such, because it's such an industry that, that could have issues mm -hmm. if you let it. So an understanding of that um, kind of was this next step from just the harvest intern or 
um, you know, into the assistant winemaker. I think the assistant winemaker, the real progression for me was during harvest, kind of the supervision of, of the fermenter bins. And, and, you know, any of the acid or sugar manipulations that we would be doing in the fermenter bin, um, understanding fermentation kinetics and, and drop in bricks and, and versus, versus temperature and, and time and all of these understandings of, of what was going on in the fermenter bin. Um, I think was, and, and then the ability to have a say in that mm -hmm. and, and to voice my opinion and be heard about, hey, this is, this is having an issue. And that, that I think was the kind of the progression into the assistant winemaking side for me. Um, being allowed to contribute in those kind of conversations I think was, was that next step in, in me understanding that my opinion meant something. Um, I've always looked at, you know, my assistant winemaker today, and, and, and she's my associate winemaker, um, being able to look at her and consider her to be that kind of eyes and ears in the cellar. Mm -hmm. I think there's this general notion that the winemaker makes the wine. Well, that's not always true. <laughs> Just for the archives, it's not always true. The, 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 the assistant and the associate winemaker are very much every part of that production. Mm -hmm. and, and even the grower, you know, I mean, the grower is the, the essence of all, that whole relationship. Um, but as you become the head winemaker, people want to see you. They, they, they want to know you exist outside of the winery. And, and so as you go and do that, the winemaker the assistant winemaker really does a lot of that day-to-day winemaking. Mm -hmm. and, and that really pushed my career to the next level. It allowed me to, to have those responsibilities. It allowed me to have the say in what was going on, to deliver the message to the winemaker. It was still his wines and you know his call, um, but providing him that information to be able to make those decisions, I think, was the next step into the assistant winemaking side. Mm -hmm. So then when the opportunity came to be a head winemaker, what were you sort of, what, what made you think you're ready for it, and what were you sort of looking forward to in the new role? Yeah, uh, so just prior to 2016, I guess it had been about 2014, I was named the associate winemaker at Lady Hill. And I think associate winemaking allows you uh, the opportunity to make some of those decisions on your own without feeling the, the need or having the, the, the need to, to have to touch base with the winemaker on every one of those calls. Um, still overall direction of the, the winemaking side underneath the winemaker, but, but as the associate, um, I could make some of those day-to-day -day calls. Mm -hmm. And I think as you make those, I felt like I was ready to be making those calls. You know, it's funny, um, I've, 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 I'm still friends with, with both Gino and, and Patrick Taylor at, at Canis Feast and, and consider them to be very much my mentors. Um, but a lot of times as the assistant and the associate winemaker, you, you begin to 
I wouldn't say question the winemaking calls, but I would say question the winemaking calls in both a good and a bad way. Whatever that is, you begin to say, well, how would I do things differently? It doesn't mean you go and do those things differently. You do them as you are supposed to do them, but you still ask yourself that question. I think asking yourself that question is the beginning of that process of like, you know, I can do this. And, and the, the more confident I became with the calls I was making as the associate winemaker, the easier it was for me to transi transition into, into leading a team. Um, whether it be managing a restaurant or being the captain of, of a soccer team, there's this need to manage individuals differently and and to approach each person on your team differently and manage them as they would need to be managed um, I had a lot of those skill sets mm -hmm. I understood the management of people and, and 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 working with people and I think that combination of, of having the confidence to go and, and build your own program or, or continue a program, uh, having the skills to continue a program and, and managing the people around that. I think once you develop those, then, then I think the head wine making position is certainly achievable. So tell me about the situation at Lady Hill as you were being hired as a head winemaker. What, 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 what was your kind of uh, impression of what Lady Hill was at that point, and what did you kind of envision you might do with it? Sure. Uh, well, um, I think the best part about that conversation is um, when Jerry and Elaine were looking for a facility to make their wines when Lady Hill first started, uh, the, the location that they were making wines, which was on uh, the owner's it had been in the owner's family since the 1850s. Production facility had been there since the late 80s. Um, it was still under lease by Owen Rowe. And so as our owners, Jerry and Elaine, were starting Lady Hill, they had to go to another location to make their wines. Uh, so I was introduced to them back in 2011, 2012. So Cana's Feast was the location that they came to make their wines. And so I had my hands, I had my hands in, the, in Lady Hill's wines from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I knew their winemaker at the time, uh, Eric Brasher, and, and uh, great winemaker, and uh, kind of knew the style of wines that they were making. Uh, the beauty of what they were making is very similar to what I was making at Cana's Feast. Mm -hmm whites and pinot locally, um, but big reds from Red Mountain, Yakima, uh, and they were the same rows I was walking with, with Cana's Feast. I mean, it was literally the same 20-some varietals that I was already making. And it just gave me an opportunity to make wines from, from other sites that I hadn't worked with. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, so it really came natural to make that, that style of wines. Um, wines were different stylistically, but, but vines were, were really pretty much the same. Um, the, the, the Owens came and asked me to take over. Uh, Eric left in 2016, and they asked me to come and, and take over the program of, of May of 2016. And I think 
you know, by that time in my career, I think I had an understanding of, of this storytelling piece and how important that was in the wine business. And uh, not to say that it's the, the wrong pathway, but there's a lot of folks, you know, that, that would start a winery um, without that story piece. Um, and not to say that any story's better than the other, but I, I liked the storytelling piece that, that Lady Hill provided. Uh, it was a property that had been in the family since the 1850s. There was this really strong conversation about the farming side of what we did, not necessarily only in the vines, but that farm to table experience, which was really, I wouldn't say new, but it was kind of an up and coming mm -hmm. uh, term uh, that, that people were looking for, that they were looking to grasp on. And I think there were all of these wineries that were opening up that, that didn't have a lot of those storytelling pieces. So to find a, a place that you could talk about not only the wines, but, but the story behind the wines, um, not only the wines, but food and the pairings that come with it. Um, I think understanding that from what I had done in, in you know, my, my, my previous at, at Canis Feast and, mm -hmm. and how important that was, um, it was really a natural progression for me. I knew that it was the right place for me to go. So, you're, so not a huge shift in the in the types of wines you're making, but I'm I'm curious. Were there any was there anything you hadn't foreseen that you had to be ready for as you were taking over as head winemaker? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's always that idea that a you're taking over someone's program, and and there's a difference between starting your own winery and knowing exactly what types of wines you want to make and delivering those wines and going to find that consumer that likes those type of wines. So you were talking about sort of taking over someone else's program and kind of where, where, where Lady Hill was at when you were kind of stepping into the role of head winemaker. Sure. Uh, so I think when you, you know, if you were to start your own winery, um, you could make whatever style of wines you wanted to make and you would go find the consumer that was gonna drink that style of wine mm -hmm. and kind of be the, the pathway. Uh, when you take over another program, there's a preset recipe, so to speak. I mean, there's no such thing in the wine business, but there's a, there's a method. And, and there's already kind of a, a consumer base mm -hmm. already built. So different than just coming in and crafting whatever wines you want to craft, um, they have to be crafted for a specific consumer. And you've got to stay with that to stay online with brand. So that's a little bit different than starting your own winery. And, and um, luckily, I, I appreciated the, the style of wines. And I appreciated the fact that it was a lot of things that I was doing already mm -hmm. with varietals that I was doing those things with. Um, say the biggest thing when I came into Lady Hill is um, twofold. One of them was uh, 
there were some issues with the wines that, and the wines needed to be cleaned up and given some love. Um, just happened to be that, that I was the guy for the job because I was a chemist and I understood those things about wine. And, I, and, and even though there aren't rules that you have to follow, there are certain things that you have to follow. I mean, if you want to make clean wines, um, there's a book on that, and, and you should follow it. Um, so I think wines need a little bit of cleanup. And they were doing a bunch of custom crush at the time. Mm -hmm. and, and the relationships needed a little bit of cleanup as well. So I think having worked with the Owens and, and them understanding you know, how technical I was with the winemaking side and how good I was on the relationship side. Uh, I think it was a natural ask for them to come have me take over the program. Mm -hmm. So I think those were probably the, the, the two biggest things was making sure that we, we came in, stabilized the wines and, and got them back on track. That always takes a little bit of time. Um, and, and solidify the, the relationships as well. Mm -hmm. uh, that was really important because the, the, the custom crush side was, was really necessary for Lady Hill at the time. So a situation like that, with, especially with the, the relationship part of that, mm -hmm. how do you start to, start to mend those fences? Yeah, well, it's, it's difficult because, you know, when you come in as a new winemaker, everyone's sort of giving you that, that look of, wonder if this guy can handle this situation type of thing. So I think, you know, just initially, just the assurance of this is what I've been doing up to this point. You know, this is what I see with your wines. And these are the steps that I think we need to take to, to get, them, get them where they need to be. Mm -hmm. uh, I had to really familiarize myself with each of those clients' wine, wine style. Because even though I'm making wines for Lady Hill, I'm custom, custom crushing for multiple different styles across multiple different varietals. So, mm -hmm. so you know, coming in, I remember first week, uh, I know this doesn't, this doesn't sound difficult, but first week was just tasting the wines. You know, it was going into the cellar and tasting every barrel. It was going into their, their storage facilities and tasting bottled wines that they had made, just having conversations with the, whether it be their, with their winemaker or their owner and just kind of understanding what their issues were. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of knew what I needed to do for that. Um, I'm curious about that, that balance. It's always interesting for me, people who are custom crush winemakers, mm -hmm. because you clearly you have your own set of yeah. kind of style you want to do, and then, you're, then you have the house style, and now you have all these other house styles. Mm -hmm. so tell me about finding that balance and, and finding the sort of the skill set to make all those different kinds of wines in all those different kinds of styles. Yeah, it's tough. Um, but it's, but, it's, a, but it's, it's exciting. Um, it's tough in that 
Uh, you have multiple different types of people that are looking to have their wines made. Some of them have an understanding about the wine production. Mm -hmm. You know, some of them maybe were winemakers back in the day and, and kind of know the concepts and the, the ideas, but are maybe not looking for that, looking to do that side of it. They just are on the road or, or whatever it is. Um, but some of them, they don't know anything about the production side. Some of them are just growers mm -hmm. or doctors that don't get anything about the production of wine. And so I think the difficult part is first helping them understand that there's a difference between me being their winemaker and me being the person that is fulfilling their work orders to make their wine. Um, me being their winemaker is uh, proprietary knowledge that um, is going to cost them. <laughs> um, me filling a work order is what their custom crush fee would pay for. So they, the first is just getting them to understand that idea of, hey, I'm not your winemaker, but I'm here to make wines according to how you want me to make them. And I think that takes out that need for me to have to tell them how their wines need to be made. If they want that information, they can ask it. But they need to tell me how they want their wines to be made. That's the key to a custom crush relationship. Because uh, otherwise, I wouldn't know any different than making them in the style that I'm making Lady Hill's wines. And that's not what people want. They don't want the same wines as everyone else is making. Mm -hmm. So I think getting them to understand that is, is critical and, and, and probably the most delicate part of that relationship. I think because I have the experience working with multiple varietals across 20 some different AVAs in the Pacific Northwest, um, that makes it easier for someone to come to me and ask me to make a different style of wine because mm -hmm. they know I probably have made a different style of wine along the way. So that made the relationship part easy, mm -hmm. uh, was, was that understanding that I was pretty much already making all of these multiple styles of wines. They just kind of needed to tell me how they wanted them made. You brought up a point earlier when you were talking about selling wine. You talked about how you're getting a lot of, you know, I love Pinot, but I'm looking for something else. Mm -hmm. uh, so with the brands you've worked for and, and do work for, you obviously you provide a lot of something else. Mm -hmm. I'm curious how that has uh, how that has landed, I guess, locally, especially with mm -hmm. people with varietals that are not Pinot Noir yeah. and they're not necessarily used to, and how that's that that has changed as people have kind of become more familiar with the, your brands. Sure. Well, I would say, um, you know, initially, uh, and 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 even to this day, I think um, of the wineries that I've worked at have always kind of been considered this this black sheep, this this thing that's different in the industry. Where, um, you know, I I don't think there was ever any 
animosity. I mean, the, the industry has always been very welcoming. It's, it's the thing I, one of the things I love most about the Oregon wine industry is the, the, the camaraderie and the, the welcoming into the industry. I think it's, um, it's something different than what you might see down south or, or you know, I, I, again, I haven't spent a lot of time in Europe, but, but you know, it's, it, there is some dog eat dog against, you know, members of the industry in other locations where I, f I feel like here in the Oregon wine industry, there's still this sense of camaraderie. Mm -hmm. And I say still, because I don't know if that will, will, will change as the industry evolves, but I think because it's still relatively new, so to speak, in the whole scheme of, of how long wine's been around, um, I think there's still a lot of really great discovery that's going on in the industry still, where, where there's a lot of camaraderie still going on up here. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, I've, and I've always seen that. But I think being that person in the beginning, there wasn't a lot of people that were making bold reds here locally. I mean, Gina was one of the first to start in the area. And, and so back then, um, I think it was, it was really pleasantly received. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you had a lot of people that were new to wine. You had a lot of people that probably didn't understand Pinot Noir right out of the gate. I don't think Pinot is typically people's entry level varietal. You know, it's, it's usually probably cheap Merlot somewhere back in the day or, or California Chardonnay. And, and so people had this preconceived idea about what they thought wine was. And I don't know if Pinot resonated with everybody early on. So being the, the, the guy who, who made the other stuff, I mean, we were super popular. It was, <laughs> it was great. I mean, and, and, and it was easy. It was easy back then um, to sell wine to people because they were, they were really impressed with how big and rich and rounded these varietals were and how they had just been at this other place and the wine was, as they called, thin or something, you know. But whatever that was, um, it was, it was, we did great. It was really popular. It was a lot of fun to be doing that. A lot of people um, kind of inquiring about that information. And, and, and so it was great. Um, I think now uh, m so many people do it. You know, it's an idea that's not this new idea anymore of like, hey, I could put grapes on a refrigerated truck and they'll be back here in four hours and I can make a big red for my cellar club. That, that idea and that concept is, is, is pretty common these days. Um, there's still those boutique whites and Pinot producers here, which is fantastic. Um, I think it's really important to continue and have those people who are just pushing Pinot to the next level. But I think it's really opened up the idea that, that there are wines for every occasion. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, I think that's certainly changed, um, both on the consumer and the producer side. So tell me about you. Tell me about your time so far at Lady Hill and sort of the, the progress you've seen and 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 your kind of your role in it, and uh, give us a kind of a look ahead at what comes next. At yeah. Lady Hill. Yeah. So, 
uh, I would say probably took, uh, took a good solid year of, of production and relationship building to get the wines back on the, the right track and, and um, moving in the direction that I knew Lady Hill, I knew the quality could be. We got fantastic grapes, so it was, it's, it's very easy to make, to make good wines if you get good grapes. Well, it's not easy, but, but it's much easier to make good wine when you get good grapes, so having good growers was, was key. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, it's been challenging. I mean, in Lady Hill was a, it was a new winery. It was, you know, maybe only four or five years old when I got to it. And despite the owners having a storied history in the wine industry with Owen Rowe, I think they thought that they could carry a lot of those relationships and, and, and they thought they could carry a lot of those over into their, into the Lady Hill brand. And although some were carried over, there were a lot that weren't carried over. It was very much a start over. And, and that was a tough concept for them to, to understand that, wow, we just worked 20 some years building all these relationships. Now we got to start over and you know it's going to take us another 20 years to build that. So I think refocusing Lady Hill's attention on, yeah, this is going to be the same amount of work for the next 20 years as opposed to, you know, we can ride the coattails uh, through this and it'll just be easy. Mm -hmm. I think that took some time as well. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're here on, on year number six and I think, um, I think quality of the wines have grown exponentially. Uh, I think just refocusing the attention on, on um, you know, brand and, and making clean wines according to the brand style, continuing to make these, you know, we, we make bigger varietals, warmer climate varietals, uh, but we make them in a food friendly aspect. They're not blown out or over the top. They're, they're really well balanced. Um, I think bringing that stylistically back into the fold has, has um, really helped us out in, in kind of getting our consumer to understand what we were doing. Hey, these are different varietals, but wow, this is really you know, balanced. Um, I think that's, that's taken a few years, but I think we're there now where people understand what I'm gonna bring to the table winemaking wise. Mm -hmm. um, our, our, our club has had a tremendous amount of growth in the last couple of years could be some COVID related, but but also I think people are understanding the quality of wines have have become very consistent. I think that's important. Um, and I think we have continued to understand what our story is and how to tell that. Mm -hmm. Uh, as I was mentioning, I think it's still a, a weakness of the, the winery, as, as it is with most wineries. I think people have a, a vision and an idea about what they want to be, but translating that to the consumer is that, that piece that a lot of small wineries lack. Um, so I think we're, we're still working on that. How do I see you know, the future growing? Well, I think Lady Hill has a really 
great opportunity to take advantage of some things in the market right now. We've, we've got a really good reputation uh, across the country um, for, for producing consistent wines over the last couple years. And, and a lot of our distribution markets that we've, that we've worked with um, are starting to see the world opening up again. And, and so, you know, we've, we've made, we're, we're, we're hoping to make this transition into some, some national growth, um, which, is, which I think is going to be great. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting because we're coming out of a real dynamic last two years where there's been a lot of dodging and moving on the industry to try to try to make it all work and and um, you know last year and the year before we saw this tremendous amount of growth in the cellar club and 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 people you know coming and picking up wine at our door not even having to come in just you know hey I want a case of wine put it outside I'm gonna come pick it up um, it seemed easy you know I mean it, it seemed easy to make those relationships even though we were not supposed to be making those relationships our club grew exponentially uh, our sales and our tasting room grew um, and I think it was you know we're still trying to put our finger on it but I think it was because that the, the Everything else was closed down. Mm -hmm. Couldn't go to your wine shop. Couldn't go to your restaurant. Couldn't go. You didn't. You weren't going to the grocery store. It was just easy. If you could make it easy to purchase wine, it was easy. Mm -hmm. And and people liked having the club membership because they got discounts on cases of wine. Well, I think this year I'm starting to see that swap where that slowed down. Tasting room activity slowed down. Club signups have slowed down. Less people are signing up for the club because now they have these other things that are back open again. Mm -hmm. So not that that's bad or good. I think just understanding and being able to dodge and move over the last couple years has really allowed us to look up at, at hey, we can do this. Mm -hmm. Whatever is going to come our way, it's not going to be as bad as what just came our way. So I think having that idea uh, I think it, it gives me a lot of optimism. Well, on that note, let's talk a little bit about what just come your way the last mm -hmm. couple of years and all the, all the dodging and moving. So yeah. tell me about uh, sort of March 2020 through, through that growing season and, uh, and all the obstacles that year. Uh, what, what was sort of your reaction to it and what were the decisions and changes you had to make yeah. to keep things going? It's funny because I'm, I'm just starting to, you know, finish up those 2020 wines, get everything in bottle and, and you know, Pinot's been in bottle for six months, but, but you know, my big reds are, are two-year wines and they're just all now starting to, to go into bottle and, and um, it's really easy to look back at those, at that vintage in particular, let's just say 2020 and, and you know, just it was a miracle that we were even able to make wine first and foremost. Um, some of the dodging and moving that we did, um, I would say, I mean, just having people stand on the processing line was difficulty. I mean, that's the very beginning thing, but having people shoulder to shoulder on the processing line just couldn't exist. Um, one way we took advantage of that, I had a grower who, uh, who could machine pick. Because they could machine pick, they pick right into the fermenter bin and I could avoid the whole processing line. Mm -hmm. So would I have made that decision? 
No. I, we've always been a hand-picking. I've worked for two wineries that have always been about hand-picking. We've never machine-picked. Uh, the idea of machine-picking was always kind of against that small boutique winery. Uh, of course, the, the machine harvesters now are absolutely amazing with optical sorters that can, you know, um, they, can, they can do what a line can do. Um, but that allowed us to avoid that process. Mm -hmm. That's just one of the ways. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, then 2020, you, you also have, you know, fire issues here in the valley. Uh, I would say most important part about that for, for Lady Hill is that we, we took everything that we were contracted to take in 2020. I, f I really feel good about that, and I feel like we did what was necessary for our growers. Um, not everybody made that decision to each their own. Everybody has a different business decision to make. But as a small boutique winery that cares very much about its growers and the relationship it has with its growers, it was a no-brainer for us. We're going to take it. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. We'll deal with it. Um, and I think we did. Uh, quality of wines from 20 uh, in eastern Washington was, was fantastic. A little bit of smoke issues up there, but, but the stuff I got from eastern Washington, that made it easier for what we were doing. We weren't just whites and pinot locally, so I had other production that I knew was quality production. Mm -hmm. That made it easier. Um, but took everything whites and pinot-wise from my growers here, and, and again, another part of the collaborative work environment here in the Valley is, is that communication about how to deal with smoke taint and smoke issues here in the Valley was absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, it really was, was how I think an industry steps up from the Willamette Valley Wineries Association message on, on messaging to consumer. Mm -hmm. It's super important. Let's be cautious about how we talk about the industry um, because it's not going to be the same for everybody. And, and let's, you know, we don't, you know, let's do our best to not hush hush, but let's wait until these wines come out. Um, I think working collaboratively with folks that maybe had dealt with smoke damage, it wasn't my first time because I'd worked with Eastern Washington fruit my whole career and I'd worked with Southern Oregon fruit. So I knew about smoke tainted grape varietals. I mean, it was, you know, it wasn't a new concept for me. Um, I think the Australian wine industry and the Californian wine industry were really collaborative in their ability because they were out in front of all of these things. They had previous vintages that were just devastated with wildfires. So that idea of how we communicate that as an industry as a whole, um, there was a lot more information that was accessible that you could read through. Mm -hmm. So taking all our fruit, taking the necessary steps, we did some filtration, we did some fining, um, we did some racking. You know, we did all of these things that, that you, you, you need to do to, to make these wines worth consumption and, and even good quality wines. Um, and frankly, I'm sold out of all my 20 Pinot. So despite 
all of the talk and all of the issues and all of the discussions, you know, mine are gone. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, think, I think we did the right things and um, we honored our growers throughout that process. Um, it was difficult though. I mean, it was a, again, it was, it, it was a miracle that we even were able to make wine in that vintage, so. Mm -hmm. 2020. You talked earlier about uh, some of the some of the kind of the characteristics of the Oregon wine industry that you found particularly appealing, the, the kind of the camaraderie and mm -hmm. the, the. So tell me about. I'm curious, sort of your your earliest impressions of the industry and and the changes you've seen today. What are the sort of the biggest changes you've seen in the past in the past 16 years in the industry? Yeah. Well, there's. You know, I think you're kind of starting to see this second and third generation of of um, wine producers. Um, there was a. You know, it's a wild west mentality in the very beginning, and and you know when I started, um, still, I think it's maybe only 250 wineries at the time when I started. Um, I think the the competitive factor has has grown exponentially, um, but that's that's not a bad thing. I think that pushes people to making wines on the next level. There's a lot of people that, that want to be a part of this game. I mean, and why not? It's a, it's a, it's a great industry. Um, so I think they're, you know, just seeing the amount of, of wineries and, and the amount of wines on the shelf are, is pretty, it's pretty amazing. Um, biggest changes that I've seen, I think, it's a tough one, you know. I think um, biggest changes that I've seen is is really, as we discussed in the beginning, is is more on the consumer side. Mm -hmm. Is is really um, how how Pinot has caught on with people here locally. It's just is it's been amazing, and that's been um, you know it's, it's been you know really great messaging from, from, from the industry about, you know, putting Pinot as the focus of, of what we do when people think of Oregon. You know, we think of Pinot Noir. I think it's probably something the Washington industry has lacked is that they haven't held on to one thing to give people this idea about what's out there. Um, so kind of clinging on to Pinot here in the industry and in, in the Willamette Valley has, I mean, you look at our tourism industry and we're one of the top wine destinations in the United States. I mean, even above Napa and some of these places down in California, people are coming to the Willamette Valley. And I think they understand what they're gonna get. Um, through all of that though, I think you can still walk into a Willamette Valley tasting room up in the hills, maybe even get a free tasting and talk to the owner or the grower or the winemaker and, and connect with that farm and that place, um, which you can't do everywhere. It's, it's tough to go and do that down south. It's tough to go and do that, you know. It, it just, but here in the industry, here in, here in Oregon, you can still go and do that. So I think even though we've made these incredible strides, there's still 
there's still some of those old remnants that exist that you can go and find. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've always considered Lady Hill to kind of be that way. I mean, we have, we're on a rustic farm. Um, we have real people that, that are willing to not just talk about wine, that, that are willing to talk about you and, and them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's probably my two biggest things. So. Mm -hmm. What about the wine quality? How has it changed? Just in general in the industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, in 16 years, you know, I've seen all kinds of different styles of wine. But uh, I would say overall, because of the camaraderie, because of the, I wouldn't say there's a vast amount of techniques that have changed over the course of that time. But when, when I first started, we didn't filter wine. Everything was unfined and unfiltered. Uh, I think there's a certain polish to filtration that, um, that is good. Mm -hmm. I think that, and, and that's become more and more accepted. Uh, it's less and less that you see unfined and unfiltered. Um, I think, I think people have, I, I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm guessing alcohol levels have gone down a little bit. I think initially people wanted to make Pinot accessible to everyone and, and a lot of people were drinking bigger wines before they came to know the valley and so, you know, I'm guessing they were light in the beginning as the American palate started to come and taste these wines, there was probably this evolution into making bigger, higher alcohol wines to make them more acceptable to these people that were coming and discovering Pinot. But I think as we've really started to discover, I mean, just the, the evolution in understanding the soils mm -hmm. and, and where is the right place to grow what and, and which of these sites are someday going to be Grand Cru versus, you know, Premier versus, you know, I mean, that same idea, you're starting to see that. Who are these incredible sites that, that have a storied history of making world-class wines? You're starting to see that. In the beginning, that was all new. I mean, that was pre-AVA. Mm -hmm. um, and and to, to Ken's credit, you know, he's bringing that multiple AVA producing different style of wines, um, producing clonally specific wines from those, um, those are all sort of new. And I think that's a, that could be a way that Pinot producers have attracted more people to Pinot as they've given them more choices. It's not just I'm going to come in and drink the, the, the blend, the Pinot blend and the, the, the Chardonnay. It's, oh, wow, I, I could taste three clones of Pinot Noir. I can taste this site, sense of place, this sense of place. That sense of place, I think, has, has been extremely important in the evolution of the Oregon wine industry. Yeah. What about what comes next for the Oregon wine industry? What does it look like in the future? Well, I think, uh, you know, while we've seen 
probably what I would consider to be better quality winemaking, improvements in techniques. Uh, I think you're also starting to see some climatic issues come into the business that that we need to be we need to be present with. We need to somehow figure out how we're going to address that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're we're in a a pretty unbelievable string of warm vintages, and at some point you you, you question that trajectory, and 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 you start to think about how we're going to evolve from that. Um, so I think that's become a big big part of it. Just in my relationships with my growers locally, is is the challenges that are coming with with the changing environment. And I think that is going to be the question that we're, we're going to have to continue and ask ourselves and, and continue to challenge ourselves mm -hmm. on. I think that, that probably is one of the biggest things. Um, I think there is, and, and this is something that I feel, you know, that I've seen over the course of the last 15 or 16 years, is, is people have seen this gem that can be Oregon wine. And um, the last couple generations of wine here has been, you know, smaller Ma and Pa winemaking facilities. And, and, and that's a challenge as those wineries get older. It's a challenge because they ask themselves, do, do I want to keep doing this? Mm -hmm. Is this, you know, do I see myself in this industry? You know, for some of them, it's much easier just to say no. It's, it's much easier just to say, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Um, and so as we're beginning to see these changeovers in generation, um, you're starting to see people from outside the Oregon wine industry come in and begin to want to be a part of that and you know without saying the negative or positive impacts of that I think you're it's it's becoming a reality where there are long-term brands that have had really great stories in the industry they have to make they have to question that at some point so I think that's something that I have been looking at as well, which is, are we going to be able to tell that Oregon story in 10 or 15 or 20 years? It's going to have to be a question that we ask ourselves. Mm -hmm. are, are there going to be people that continued to hang on to that Oregon story? Mm -hmm. So I think that, that's going to be something that we're going to have to look at here. Interesting way to put it. I, I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, what about we talked about kind of future for, for Lady Hill? What about what's coming up for you? What are you looking ahead to for your own future? Yeah. Well, prefer to just be on a fishing bank at some point. So how do I get there? <laughs> it's the question I ask myself every day. I mean, I've got I got a young family and and. Uh, 
this business has a way of taking up every minute that you you provide it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and I love the industry, so I, I, I'm okay providing it with a good portion of my life. But uh, as my kids get older, I think it's, I have to realize that um, although I love being a part of this industry, there, there will come an end to that at some point. Mm -hmm. um, I won't be able to climb on for men or bends, and I won't be able to, 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 to grind it out 12 to 15 hours a day during harvest. Uh, it's, it's a young person's game at some point, so you, you, you have to, I have to come to that realization. I'm not there yet. I still love and look forward to uh, <laughs> the work in harvest. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, feel a hangover after when I'm not, when I don't have that work, you know, I kind of, I don't know where my, I have to figure out who my wife and my family are again and have to get back into that. But, and, and as much as I love that side of it, it's, it's, it's tough every year, you know, so I've just spent those three months away. So, um, and I, and I still feel really passionate about that, but I think at some point, um, it, it will continue to evolve into telling people how to do that and not necessarily doing that myself. I think, um, you know, as my career has moved from just being a lab tech to working in the tasting room to doing, uh, I've been asked to do general management duties in the winery. I think an understanding of the overall concept of the winery and, and, and not just the production side, but the sales and the marketing side of it. Uh, I've taken on general management roles at Lady Hill. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, if I were to think about what my fastest way to that fishing bank is, probably be in that general management role and then probably into a consultation role mm -hmm. where I just stepped back from that day to day at the winery and told people how to do the day-to-day -day at the winery. So I think those are, that's the evolution of my career. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like it. So all the questions that I have for you today, uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? No, I think it was a great discussion. Right. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time and for coming and sharing your stories with us. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.